Welcome to the Wilton Baptist Church, where we worship God, walk with others, and win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Pastor Steve, and our congregation is pleased to share this message with you today, and we pray it'll be a blessing and an encouragement to you. Blessings as you listen or watch. We're in Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. Hope you had a great week. A lot of students had school off this week. And uh, it's good to see each of you here this morning. I was up in Fort Edward the other day. There's a new gas station. And I uh, got some fuel and uh, went in to get some coffee and uh, then get a receipt. And uh, as I was walking in, I noticed two cops, two police were watching this woman at the gas pump, and she was pumping the, the fuel, but she was smoking. And I thought, that's kind of crazy. You know, she's smoking, she's pumping fuel at the same time. So these officers were watching her. And I went in and, and uh, was paying for everything. And then I, I heard some screaming. I looked out through the window, and this woman is, is running around. She's waving her arm. Her arm's on fire. She's yelling and trying to get her arm uh, uh, <laughs> cooled down from the fire. And uh, then I ran out, and the officers had already, they kind of had tackled her, put the uh, fire blanket on her, was putting, putting the fire out. And I thought that was crazy that she was uh, smoking while she was doing that. And then they started putting handcuffs on her. And so I was wondering, why are they, why are they handcuffing her? And, uh, you know, because of what happened. And, and I said, why are you, uh, are you arresting this lady? And uh, the officer looked me dead in the eye and said, she's waving a firearm. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that is made up story just to clarify <laughs> we tend to report what we see and we think of news as reporting what we see or what they see it's always good to have two cooperating witnesses by the way sometimes people just make stuff up just like I did there's a war correspondent in our passage here today. And he's writing down the things that he sees. It's a really good idea to have um, knowledge about where the story comes from. I think about MSN, you know, mainstream media. There's social media, you have pundits, people reporting what they, what they say or what they see. And a lot of times people don't tell you what happened, they tell you what to think about what happened. And uh, sometimes that's the news that we see around us. But here is a reporter in chapter 9. Some of you remember Gulf Storm and Gulf uh, Desert Storm, Desert Seal, all of those early 90s wars. And, and uh, I remember watching Anderson Cooper with the missiles going off behind him and, and streaks of flames going through the air. You remember what that, that was like. Uh, back then. He was a war correspondent, and there's been many others before and after him, of course, as well. Well, here's the original war correspondent. Now, last time in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we looked at the different 
word or actually illustrations that God gives and these word pictures or object lessons that God tells Ezekiel to do, laying on his side for over a year, eating this food. And, and as I was preaching this, Natalie talked to me about it afterwards and said, you know, that, that bread that he baked, that, that kind of sounded like it would taste okay. It didn't sound like it tasted okay to me after baking it over uh, over cow patties and, you know, over human feces was the original idea. They actually make Ezekiel 9 bread. Have you ever seen this before? This is Ezekiel 9 bread. So maybe we should try it and just don't bake it over anything. But uh, the point of that is, all those illustrations was that the people were going to go through famine and starvation and there's going to be... Uh, the seeds that would take place, and then the others would go and die by the sword. There would be violence. And so God was telling them ahead of time, here's the circumstances, because I'm your God and you're my people, but you've abandoned that, and I've long since then abandoned you. And so that would be part of their judgment, eventually eating uh, really disgusting food from that. This would keep them alive, but at eight ounces a day, it's no feast that they would be enjoying. So let's read chapter 9 as the message continues, and we find some really absolutely incredible things here. I'll just begin reading chapter 9, verse 1. He cried, this would be God, Ezekiel has another vision of the Lord, he sees the Lord uh, in his glory, he doesn't see God directly, but he sees the glory of God, the four cherubim are all here as well, wherever the four cherubim are, protecting, guarding the holiness of God, that's where you see the glory of God, his presence is somewhere in the distance, and uh, it's manifest to him, so he also hears God's voice, so he, he cried also in mine ears, with a loud voice saying, cause them that have charge over the city to draw near even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. So these are angels who have oversight. They have a charge and they have a destroying weapon. We could call these angels destroying angels. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand, and one man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side, and they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. Here's the first war correspondent. He's a reporter. He has an inkhorn at his side behind this little sash type thing. He would have an inkhorn to be a well and maybe a feather or something or something to write with. Dip it in and write it on some parchment you'd have to have with him as well. So the first war correspondent. And the glory of God. That's where he heard the voice from this glory, this bright radiance, uh, kind of in a mystical sense, often in the backdrop. The glory of God of Israel was gone up from the cherub. So in the temple and the holy of holies is the ark of the covenant and there's cherubim on each side part of the gold decor and in between would be the holy seat or where god his presence would be revealed so god was there but he moved up the glory moved from there this is important we'll find that in our first main uh, main idea so he gone out from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. Now he's at the top of the house. And he called to the man with, clothed with linen, which had the writer's acorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men 
that sign and that sigh rather and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. If you want to underline a word, we're going to come back to it. It's the word mark. He says to mark them, and that's a real key text a word to understand the rest of the passage. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, go, this would be to the six angels with destroying weapons in their hand, go ye after him through the city, and smite, let not your eye spare, neither have pity. So the first angel's going, he's marking, and the other six angels are going with their destroying weapons, and they're destroying after the one who does the marking. Slay utterly, young and old, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary, begin at the temple. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house, so the old guys who were sitting outside of the temple. And he said unto them, Defile the house, and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. And it came to pass, while they were slaying them, and I, this is Ezekiel, was left. He was all alone. I fell on my face and cried and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel thy, uh, in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? The word residue here is one of the four terms for remnant that we find Ezekiel using. It means remnant or remainder. It's the rest. So those who were righteous, are they going to die as well as part of this? And then he saith he unto me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great. And the land is full of blood and the city uh, full of perverseness. And they say, the Lord hath forsaken the earth and the Lord seeth not. In other words, God's not even around here. He doesn't care. He's abandoned us. So it doesn't matter what we do. And as for me also, mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense their way upon their head. And behold, the man clothed with linen, which had the acorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou hast commanded me. And so he writes it down. He marks all of these, these uh, people. He's like the, he's the first war correspondent in a way. But he's marking the people who were righteous, the ones who were mourning and crying over their sin. He was marking the remnant. Ezekiel sees the glory of God. He hears God's voice. He sees uh, this angel documenting and, and marking people. In verse 3, the Lord is in the Holy of Holies. He's on the Ark of the Covenant. Then he moves up to the temple threshold. Think about the the pinnacle or the top of the building in Ezekiel 10 verse 4. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. So now people outside can see this presence. And then God's presence, as you continue the next couple chapters, uh, he then goes to the eastern gate of the temple. Then the glory of the Lord, this is Ezekiel 10 verses 18 and 19. The glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And they went out. The wheels also were beside them. Everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. The eastern gate is near the golden gate. Today you can go to the golden gate. It's all blocked off, but it's the easternmost part, which faces the Mount of Olives. There's a little path going down there. You 
you pass the uh, a little uh, stream uh, going across the brook of Kidron, and uh, that's that area there. And that's the same gate in which Jesus rode in on the donkey on Palm Sunday. So then, the next time we see the Lord moving is in Ezekiel 11, and he appears on the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel 11, verses 23 and 24. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Afterwards, the Spirit took me up and brought me a, in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to them of the captivity. So the vision that had been uh, went up from me. So the Lord moved again. And at the very end of Ezekiel, the Lord appears again in a new temple in the millennium, and notice where he shows up in Ezekiel 43, verses 2 through 5. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like a noise of many waters. The earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. That's in the chapter we read in chapter 9. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Chabar. I fell on my, my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner courts. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Ezekiel 43 is the millennial kingdom. And it's the new temple in Jerusalem. And I find it absolutely amazing where the glory of God comes from Mount of Olives, and then he goes through the eastern gate and then arrives back where it all started at the temple. Does this sound like something, if you know anything about eschatology, does this sound something like, like Jesus? The Lord comes to Jerusalem, leaves via the Mount of Olives, and comes back via the Mount of Olives, and he comes through the eastern gate again. That's what Jesus did. He went out of the eastern gate. He went up to the Mount of Olives, and after the crucifixion, he, he went up to the Mount of Olives again, and from there, he ascended into heaven. And if you read throughout the Old Testament, we know where Jesus comes back when, the, when after the rapture and after the seven years of tribulation, when he speaks at the Valley of Megiddo, he speaks from the air, and all those enemies fall down dead at the Battle of Armageddon, but then he goes over to the Mount of Olives, and that's where... He touches down. Jesus touches down on the Mount of Olives. And the Lord tells us the earth splits and Jesus goes into Jerusalem through the gate that today is blocked up. But it's not blocked anymore because of the earthquake that the Bible foretells will happen. So the, the glory of God is, is replicating. What Ezekiel sees is what Jesus is going to do in the future. But I want you to notice something, that before this judgment from these six destroying angels takes place, the presence of God moves. He moves out of the temple before they start their slaughter. He moves out of Jerusalem before they start the slaughter in Jerusalem. He moves away. And then the angels begin. Sometimes God moves away. And then you know judgment is impending. And judgment is happening. The only thing that makes the temple a holy place is the presence of God. The only thing that makes you a holy person is the presence of Jesus, his spirit in you. That's why we're called uh, the dwelling place of God. We're this new living temple ourselves.
Well, he has this writer's ink horn. It's used only here in, in Ezekiel uh, several times. And uh, it was the, kind of like a, a case for reed pens and an, a container of ink. So he probably had it just kind of in, in his vest pocket or something. If he had something, it would be more like a row, but just like reaching in to grab out his stuff to write. And they call that a girdle or a sash. But he's to mark the residue or the remnant. These are the ones who will survive. And they're the ones who are sad and grieving about sin. We find that in verse 4, verse 8. They're the ones who are very remorseful about the fact of the sinfulness of the, God, of the people who have abandoned their God. And he says to mark them. Remember that word there in verse uh, 4? that we emphasize, he says to mark them, he says set a mark upon their foreheads. So this is the word tav, it's the letter tav, tav, a mark or a signature is what it is. So a tav, you can see that little symbol there. Let's check out this next little symbol thing. So that's a tav, that's modern Hebrew, and uh, whenever I read Hebrew, that's the tav, it's like a T. In our language, it's the equivalent, it's the last uh, of that type of letter in their language. But back around the time of Christ, check this out, this would be about what they wrote back then in the ancient language. This would be more Middle Hebrew, and that would be the signature for a lot of people. So you have people, you hear people say X marks the spot, or they would sign something back in the old days, they would sign an X for their name. Okay, it comes from this idea of a Tav, a T, but this is absolutely amazing. Because in the day of Ezekiel, in early Hebrew, the Tav was the shape of a cross. This was one of those moments for me. Because when that angel went out, he was putting ink on their forehead in the shape of a cross. And, and Ezekiel would not have had any idea of what he was seeing or what it meant when, they, when the angels put a cross on them. They were marked with the cross. Absolutely amazing. Those without the mark, without the cross, would die in judgment. Those marked with the cross in a spiritual world were miraculously spared when a Babylonian soldiers came to kill. Now, think about this. Let's think through this for a moment. He's seen this vision. No one else sees these six destroying angels, nor would anyone else see this guy, this angel marking these people. So it's an invisible cross to us, physically speaking. Your eyes back then wouldn't have seen it. But those angels saw it. And by the way, when those, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians came and was destroyed, which these angels are a picture of, and which are illustrating this, um, and they, they may have been there, by the way. Uh, we don't see these things. Um, they just were killing everybody, but the remnant survived. Whoever was marked survived according to this promise that God gives. In verse 6, you're going to slay everybody, young and old, women, children, everybody. But thou shalt not come near upon any whom is the mark. No, no one with that mark is going to die when the Babylonians come. So you think of people with the character of uh, Daniel and Jeremiah. Jeremiah would have been there. And also Ezekiel 
they were spared. This really happened. Within 12 years of this prophecy, this took place. And these soldiers came in and did this. What God says will happen, and it's going to happen. God says then, however, it's too late for them. In verse 9, they've not repented of their iniquity, their bloodshed, that's violence, or their perverseness. All this sinfulness, they did not confess. It was now the year 592 B.C., at the beginning of chapter 8. And the city of Jerusalem wouldn't be taken until... 586, so sometime later, some of the inhabitants had already died of famine and pestilence, but when the Babylonian army broke through the walls, many more were slaughtered with the sword. Second Chronicles highlights this in verse 17 of chapter 36. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young men or made an old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. Now notice also that judgment began in the house of God. It began in the temple. Peter tells us judgment begins at the house of God. First Peter 4, 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first began at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? So even if some, the remnant were spared, their lives were spared, can I also suggest their lives were still affected because... Their temple was destroyed, their city was ransacked, and most of their family and people around them all died or were carried away. And so everyone's still affected by this judgment. Warren Wearsby wrote, if there were more salt in this world, there would be less decay. The more light would mean less darkness. Our good works glorify the Lord, but our sins invite his discipline. In chapter 10, we see the Spirit of God moving again, and Ezekiel sees this reporter angel, and the reporter angel takes coals of fire. He takes coals indicating that the judgment of the Babylonians would also bring a burning, and for sure, they burned the temple, and they burned Jerusalem as well. So there's a whole lot of things that's taking place here. A similar scene unfolds in the tribulation with this marking. In Revelation 7, verses 2 through 3, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having a seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the sea, the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. In Ezekiel's imagery, what God gave him in this vision, the judgment wouldn't take place until after those were sealed with that cross. In Revelation 9, verse 4, it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. So I was looking into this idea of putting a cross on our foreheads. Today, Christians do not need to put crosses on our foreheads or ashes on our, or, or like a cross on our face because, and here's the reason why, we're no longer condemned. And on top of that, if you're a Christian, you're already sealed by the Holy Spirit. He sealed you unto the day of redemption. He's marked you. Ephesians 4.30, among several others, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed. You are sealed until the day of redemption. So what about these six military angels? Angel team six. Kind of catchy? What do you think? 
they are said to have charge over the city in verse 1. They have oversight. They have a charge. They have a responsibility. Angels have assignments from the Lord. In a spirit world, there, there is such a thing as a hierarchy of angels. They have uh, different positions and ranks, apparently, because of the different roles that they play. In the spirit world, uh, Satan is also part of the fallen angels. The first one, we find them here, are the cherubim. And go back and listen to a message a couple weeks ago about these, these cherubim because they have four faces, like the face of a lion, an ox, uh, a man, and an eagle. And they can see every which way all at the same time. It's just absolutely amazing to have these wheels that are spinning, they're floating around. And you can look at that uh, description there. But these angels have assignments from the Lord. The cherubim are mentioned by Ezekiel guarding the holiness of God. We find them in the book of Genesis. They are at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And anywhere you see this glory of God, you also will see these, these uh, particular cherubim angels. Gabriel and Michael are called archangels. And so they are maybe the chief angels among the angel realm. Angels, as a basic understanding, are messengers. They deliver things. They are also servants of the Lord. They run errands. They accomplish things. Lucifer is a fallen angel. So Satan is a fallen angel. That means he's a created being. He's not always been around like Jesus. Jesus has always been around. He's preexistent. But Satan was a created person, uh, just like the rest of these angels. And apparently, in this verse, in this chapter, there's destroying angels. There's some that are destroying, or at least at this moment in their existence, their charge is, their responsibility is, to be a destroying angel. Back when David numbered the people, and he was lifted up with pride, he started to number the people, and God judged him for that, but God let him choose his judgment. He was quick to ask forgiveness for being lifted up with that pride. God said he could choose three years of famine, or three months of defeat in battle from enemies, or three days of pestilence with the sword of the Lord, using that pestilence to kill off people. And David chose that one. He chose the judgment that would be from the hands of God. And God's destroying angel brings pestilence. In First Chronicles 21, God sent an angel into Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld and repented him the evil. And so we find here's a destroying angel, just another example of that type of an angel. And there are guardian angels that exists as well. Lots of verses we could consider. I think of even how we could entertain angels unawares. That's a real possibility that the Bible describes. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So here's a group, plural, lots of little kids, a group of kids. And so here's plural angels in heaven, probably, perhaps one for each one. We don't know. Uh, maybe an angel for every few people. We don't know how that would break down. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So angels are serving God. They're also serving you in some ways that we may never comprehend. 
in our lifetime. There's a, there's a few other verses that describe these types of angels and what they do. But here this war correspondent angel, this man clothed with linen with his ink horn, he returns after recording the events and marking the righteous with the cross. In verse 11 he says, I did what you said to do to the Lord. No one then was spared except for the godly remnant. Now, this is a lot of information, and that's a long introduction, but we had to understand there's a lot of things happening here. Here's the big idea that we'll talk about. We should let the cross mark our lives. We should let the cross mark our lives. And there's several ways that we find this remnant doing that in Ezekiel's day. The ones that the angel marked with the cross. Here's some distinguishing characteristics about them. The first one is this. They were confessing and mourning over sin. He says in verse 4, to set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abomination that is done in the midst thereof. Being fast to confess our sin is a good thing. Being sensitive to, hey, this is sin. This is something that's between me and God. I need to confess that to the Lord. I need to turn around for it, from it. Confession is good for the soul, and it's good for your relationship with God. And so these people were looking at what was happening, and even in their own lives, and they were tearful. They were mourning. They had great confession in 1 John 1, 9, the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So examine your life today. In just a moment, we'll have a response time and see, you could ask the Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me, like David cried out, and confess that to God. Turn around from that. A mark of a Christian is confession of their sin. Let the cross mark your life. A second uh, characteristic or quality is found in verse 8. They are crying, and Ezekiel rather is crying. He's one of the remnant. He's crying and praying for the people. It came to pass while they were slaying them. He's, he's seen all this destruction. I was left, and I fell on my face and cried, Ah, oh, Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel thy, in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? So he's crying, and he's praying. He's interceding on behalf of those who were now suffering because of this judgment. Ezekiel is not beside himself with joy, like, hey, they're getting what's coming to them. He wasn't like that. Hey, if, if you're happy when somebody has judgment or somebody is experiencing uh, trouble, and it could be, we can't always tell what their trouble's from. It could be as a consequence of their sin, but we don't always know that. But if you get excited that, that somebody gets caught or somebody's getting what's coming to them, something's wrong with your Christianity. We shouldn't be so bold and brash and, and arrogant. Because if it were not for the grace of God, it would be you. And thank God for your response to say yes to Jesus Christ. Whenever God moves away from a person, judgment is impending. You celebrate that. That's a sad time. That is a sad day in Israel. 
It's a sad day for any country or nation or city or family or person who moves away from God to the degree that God says, okay, your time is up, judgment is coming, I'm moving away, and now judgment is impending, and it's here. God's visible presence moved away before the judgment began in the temple. Don't be happy they're getting what they deserve. God will give and mete out what is deserved and has nothing to do with us. Sometimes we'll say stupid things or post idiotic things online, acting like we're happy about when things go wrong or they're getting it. Don't be that person. Abraham prayed for Abimelech. Moses prayed for all the people. Job prayed for his friends. Esther and Mordecai prayed for the people to be spared. We should pray for other people when judgment comes, when problems come. And pray and, and be mourning over this. So confess and mourn over sin. Cry and then pray for others. And then we need to turn to chapter 11 for the next idea, which we find in verses 2 through 3, we should continue to believe the Lord. Ezekiel continues to believe the Lord. Notice what the Bible tells us here. Then said he unto me, Son of man, it was his, uh, the name that God gave him many times, to Ezekiel, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in this city, which say it is not near. Let us build houses. This city is the cauldron. We be the flesh. Uh, in other words, there's 25 guys listed or, or mentioned in verse 1, and they were saying things that was contrary to what God said was going to happen. Okay, we'll just live in a city. We'll build houses. And, uh, okay, we dare them to drag us out. If we're going to die, we're going to die in a city. If this siege happens, and, and uh, we're, we'll be okay. We'll just be okay here. They were denying what God said was going to take place. They are uh, political leaders, some of them. Some of them are religious leaders. They are the elites of the day who are false teachers offering a false hope. And these false teachers are promoting mischief and promoting wickedness. And they teach jealousy and greed and selfishness and arrogance and pride. And in a way, God marks them and he says, Ezekiel, I want you to contend with them and prophesy against what they've been telling the people. Because you're not going to keep living in the city like a hunk of beef in a, a pot of hot water. They're going to be carried out. And a lot of these guys were. They either died from starvation from the siege, they were carried out uh, or killed out in battle outside of the city, or they were just carried away captive somewhere else. Romans tells us in chapter 16, verse 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrines which ye have learned, and avoid them. Uh, be careful who you listen to and what they're talking about. Hobby horse preachers and people that just, they just pound one thing. A lot of those guys, they're just imbalanced and they're misleading. They're misleading of people from the truth. And it is, it's kind of like, like what these guys are doing here. They're ill-informed or ignorant and mislead people away from the truth. And here's what God wanted Ezekiel to know. No matter what happens, what problems you're going to face, what problems they're going to face, because, of course, he was over just south of Babylon. Whatever's, whatever's going to happen, we need to keep believing God. Okay, here's what the false teachers are saying. Here's what the leaders are saying. And here's what God says will take place. And friends, because what happened to Ezekiel and what God showed him would happen to Jerusalem and the temple, uh, Judah and Israel, we know when the rest of the book talks about the future that hasn't happened yet, it will happen.
It'll take place. In God's timing, what God says will happen will happen. We need to continue to believe the Lord. Ezekiel reminds us to know the truth. So I just wrote down some ideas about true believers. True believers have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. They are participating in the life of Christ in the present day. They are anticipating and looking forward to the return of Jesus and allowing his righteousness to guide their lives. That should be you and I as disciples of Jesus today. I like how one seminary teacher I had uh, tells this. He said, uh, he is our living teacher. Jesus is our living teacher. And we are not asleep while we walk with him. Spiritual formation in Christ is not simply an unconscious process in which results, uh, in which results may be observed while the one God who works in us remains hidden. We actually experience his workings. We look for them, expect them, give thanks for them. We are consciously engaged with him in the details of our existence and our spiritual transformation. And so we need to continue learning from Christ, believing Christ. The Lord wants us to have our character formed even through difficult circumstances and no matter what takes place. We can keep believing God. Keep trusting him. No matter what the talking heads and the voices around us and the misleading teachers would say. So what should we do then? If we want to be true followers of Christ. Let me challenge you with this. Inform your faith. Inform your faith. Bible reading and prayer. And Selah. Sometimes moments of solitude and silence where you turn everything off. And then absorb that Bible reading and make even more uninterrupted prayer possibility. Just stop everything that'll help inform your faith. Sustain your faith. Our small groups having ongoing discipleship, Bible memorization, these things help. That we would know the truth, know the, know the Lord's truth, and that does set us free. Share your faith. Find ways to serve others. I've encouraged you many times over the years to find your ministry and do it. Find one thing to do and do it and just start with that. Then you could expand on it. Participate in faith. Let the gospel impact your daily life. And it's not so much to do but to be. It's like humility, graciousness, kindness. These are things that we need. So the next time there's a war correspondent on TV or the media that you're looking at, or you hear about another war, I mean, there's one in Ukraine and Israel, there's more wars going to happen, there's always going to be another war. Whenever you see that or hear that, let it remind you of the cross that this reporting angel marked on all the remnant. And let the cross, let the cross guide your life. Let the cross mark your life. Let's take some moments here to pray and to seek the Lord. Here's the questions. You can see them on the screen if you want. Before we pray, maybe today there's a confession that needs to take place. You have some known sin in your life. This is sin that I have. I confess that sin. Today, whatever sin it is, I'm going to take a moment right now. I'm going to examine my heart and life. And confess sin. Is there anybody like that? That's something I want to do. Just examine my life and confess. I see a lot of hands. Good. God bless you. It's good to be honest, especially when you're talking about confessing sin. Number two, 
I will cry and pray for others. I'll see judgment or possible discipline happening or just something bad that's happening to somebody. We don't know the cause always. But that's going to drive me to cry out and to pray for them. People are already raising their hands. God bless you. Help us with that. Yes. Let's pray for those, those folks. And then number three, with God's grace, I will continue to be a disciple of Jesus no matter the situations that arise. You don't know what's going to happen, but we need to continue with Christ. Anybody like that? Oh, a lot of hands again. Yes, let's continue. No matter what happens to you or among your family or with others or with your community, let's keep trusting the Lord. Father, we thank you for this moment that we can pause and see the cross and see its mark on our life. I pray that you would help each Christian here to be participating in the life of Christ, actively seeking you, your gentleness, your righteousness, your kindness, your compassion. Let us truly be marked with Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us. If there's known sin, let us confess that today. And if someone's being judged or disciplined or we're just going through a difficulty, we don't want to jump to conclusions or be arrogant. Let us pray. Let us cry tears with them and then pray with and for them. And Lord, thank you that we can return to you. Thank you that you're with us right now. Lord, we pray that you bless us as we take these truths and let us be true followers of Christ in daily life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.